0: Okay, we've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark for the past 87 years now, I think, and uh, we are now in Mark chapter 13. We've been in this for a long time, uh, but we're moving through. Now we're in Mark chapter 13. We're looking at verses 14 to 27 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to uh, turn there. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will come up on the screens beside me. I'm going to invite Natasha to come up. And to, um, to read these verses, Natasha also heads up our Grace Kids team. We don't normally do this when people come to read the Bible, but can we give her a big round of applause? Um, she's an amazing leader and a real gift to this church. Thanks for reading this morning. Thanks for everything else you do in the life of the, the church as well. But let's, let's hear this.
1: Um, so I'm reading from uh, Mark chapter 13, verses 14 to 27. Um, I'll start. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven.
0: Thank you, Natasha. That's great. Guys, let's pray together. We'll look into this. Father, thank you this morning that we come before a God who is near, uh, who has not chosen to stay silent to us, who's not even chosen to stay far removed from us. But God, in your grace, you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to pay the penalty that we deserved, for all the ways that we've declared ourselves as God, for all of the ways that we have said that we know better than you. And you made a way for the punishment that we deserve to be put on him so that we can enjoy life with you to the full as sons and daughters that you love. God, thank you for that. Thank you that you're speaking, God. Thank you that you want to speak to each of us this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide my words and that you would give us as a church ears to hear From your word this morning, Jesus, we pray this for your glory and yours alone. Amen. Amen. Well, let me tell you a little bit about uh, my week this week. One of the perks of my job is that I have Mondays off. Sundays tend to be great days, but very long days, so I have Mondays off. And then Tuesdays, the first part of Tuesdays, and the big chunk of it are set aside for sermon preparation. So this past Tuesday morning, off I went. I got in the car and drove my wife to work over near the St. Laurent Mall, dropped her off at work, and then off I went into Starbucks. And being a church pastor, I am required by law to have a MacBook and to work at Starbucks. You lose your church license if you don't do that. So there I am. I'm in Starbucks. I order my my, uh, my, my, my coffee and, you know, a little bit of room for milk and sugar, and everything's going well. And I was actually in a very small Starbucks over near that mall as well. So finding a seat is hard enough in there, Let alone finding a seat beside an electrical outlet for my laptop. So I look over and I find a seat and there's a wall plug right beside it. And I'm like, this, the favor of God is shining on me this Tuesday morning. I sit down and I open up my laptop and I start looking into uh, the notes and into the text that we're looking at this morning. And the very first words that I read are these. The abomination of desolation. Yes! Yes! And I remember getting on the phone to Matt Luard, who preached last week and preached very, very well uh, last week. And I would even say kind of the first part of a two-part little mini-series within this series that we're doing. And I said, Matt... You run the preaching schedule. What has happened? You're supposed to do the tough ones. I'm supposed to do like the inspiring ones that you get up and come on, rah, rah, let's go to Starbucks and then take the world for Jesus. Come on, let's do this church. Matt, you're supposed to do the hard ones. And he said, no, Rich, you're not going to weasel your way out of this. You need to be up there on Sunday morning. You need to do this. And it's good for the church to hear this. And can we just acknowledge together this morning before we go any further that there are things that are said in this book. For any of you that are Christians this morning and you've read this book, even those of you that are not Christians this morning and you've read some or all of this book, there are things in this book, the Bible, which are hard. There are pages that we go, oh my goodness, if I, if I were the editor of this, I don't, I don't know if I'd put that page in. This thing that was said all those years ago that, that maybe it seems like it might have made sense for that culture, but for our culture, oh man, it's It's tough. And then even drilling down into the words that Jesus spoke, himself, and even coming to his words. And it's very rare that you would hear, in fact, in my life, I'm 36, I've never heard anybody say, well, something that Jesus said was wrong. I've never, I've never had anybody say that to me. That would be a bold claim for somebody to say, Jesus was wrong about this or about something. But even still, there are words that Jesus spoke that are still very hard to hear, very hard to understand, very hard to wrap our minds around, Jesus, what, what are you saying there? This seems just weird. It seems strange. It seems cryptic. What, what is happening here? And the verses that we're looking at this morning from Mark chapter 13, including the verses that Matt was preaching last week, and if you weren't with us last week, I'd really encourage you to get onto the website and listen to that talk. These are tough words. These are tough words. They, 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 they're confusing, We read them and we think, Jesus, what in the world are you saying here? And how in the world is this applicable for life today in Ottawa? You know, maybe in first century Palestine, that would make sense, the context that he was speaking into and where he was walking himself. But all these years later, today, here, in the capital city of our nation, and and all that life includes in Ottawa, how in the world is this relevant or helpful for life today? I want you to know that thinking that way is not wrong I don't want you to feel in any way like if you ever have those thoughts that God is kind of looking at you and just kind of wagging his finger at you, i shame on you. That's not his heart towards you whatsoever. It's okay to acknowledge that there are things in scripture that make for difficult reading. But what do we do with that? Do we just take, do we take the tough pages, the things where culturally it's like, "Ooh, man, that, that makes for tough reading, or the things like what we're looking at this morning where it's not as much a cultural thing, but it's more just a, this is just strange. There's, there's wording in here and events that are described that, that sound just peculiar to us. Do we just blast through it or ignore it? Or kind of think, well no, that, that maybe at a time that was relevant for some people, but not for us now. Well no, we, we we mustn't do that. And the reason we mustn't do that is because scripture is very clear that all scripture is God breathed. We read that in First Timothy chapter three. All scripture, every single page of it, every word, all scripture is God-breathed. And all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And that includes the parts of Scripture that we look at and go, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't like that. I wish I could take that out of the book. See, the thing is, we as a church, our point every Sunday and in our life groups that you've already heard about this morning, there's no part of us as a church that wants to get together on Sunday or get together at a life group gathering and go, what do we wish that God was like? If we could, if we could conjure up God according to our kind of premise, according to, to our ideas of what God should be like, this is what he would look like. That, that would, we'd be horrific Uh, church leaders and and pastors, if if we kind of had a bunch of discussions that way and only stayed there. We're we're not interested in that. We're interested in getting into Scripture and finding out from God himself, because all Scripture is God-breathed, God, what do you say you are like? How do you feel about this? How do you feel about decisions that I'm making or that the culture around us is making? God, what is it that's on your heart for this rather than us trying to project on God how he should think or how he should feel or how he should behave. How do we know what God thinks or feels or behaves like we know through this book? We know through the Bible. All scripture is God breathed. All of it is profitable including what we're looking at this morning. So before we move from here I want to ask you this, what what is your basis for truth? For truth, I don't just mean different opinions, different perspectives, but truth. You, as you're going about life in Ottawa, those of you that are students, those of you that are working in government, working in other jobs, all across the city, how do you determine what is true? What I would say is that this book tells us that truth is found in here because this flows from God. And as a church, everything that we say and do and think, we want to bounce off of Scripture. We want to go, well, what does this book say about it? Are we just hearing somebody else's opinion, or are they telling us something that is grounded in Scripture? It's very, very important. It's very hard to go through life without knowing what you believe is true. And we live in a culture that gets very fearful about that. We get very fearful about truth. Anybody who's seen to be making a truth claim is, is treated with a lot of suspicion or even contempt, well, let's be very clear. Jesus was not peddling opinions. Jesus was speaking truth. Not only was Jesus speaking truth, Jesus is truth himself. and He says that, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whatever your experience of Christianity, whatever your experience of faith, whatever your experience of of Jesus, of the church, may be, Don't come this morning thinking that Jesus was just interested in offering his opinion to you. He's offering truth to you. He's offering truth to you this morning. It makes sense if we understand that all Scripture is God-breathed and that God does not operate the way that we do. He doesn't think like we do. He doesn't reason like we do. He doesn't love like we do. He doesn't pursue justice like we do. We're, We're fickle in all of these things. We can change with the wind. God isn't like us. But it makes perfect sense for us to understand that there are going to be parts of this book that will offend us and that we'll have to wrestle with if God is so not like us. See, friends, listen to this. If, if God were like us, if, if God did everything the way that we did, if we read every page of this book and just thought, well, yeah, this, this, just, this just affirms my worldview, This just affirms everything that I think. This is great. Look at this. Yeah, I've thought that. I think that. Yeah, I was telling my friend that the other day. I was telling somebody in my family that the other day. All of this is just affirming everything that I believe. Let me ask you this. Would God be any different than us then? Well, not really. (laughs) We certainly wouldn't have a need for him. We certainly wouldn't have a reason to worship him. But God is different than us. His mind doesn't operate the same way that ours does. He doesn't think the same way that we do. So it makes perfect sense that there are going to be things in Scripture that are going to be hard for us to get our minds around, that we're going to wrestle with. Let me also tell you this. This book, in some way, in some form, has offended every single culture that it has ever been taught in. This is not unique to our culture in Ottawa today. Some of you have friends that even if they knew you were at church here this morning, hearing preaching from the Bible, they would have some pretty fiery thoughts on that. Some of you might even this morning. But don't think for a minute that that's unique to our culture now. It's not. The Bible has offended every single culture it has ever been put in because people throughout all of history, all of humanity, are not like God. There are going to be things in each of us, in every culture, anywhere in the world, at any period in history, where God's truth is going to cut across it and it's going to go, oh, wow, wow, that's, that's so different to how we think. Now, the verses we're looking at this morning in Mark chapter 13 have strange things in them, things where, again, we might just be tempted to look at it and go, well, let's just kind of quickly gloss over that or not really think about how this applies to life. We, we need to understand this. Anytime you're reading the Bible, it's also important to know that we need to understand Scripture through its historical context as well, mindful of the original audience that it was written to. It's all applicable for life today, but it's helpful for us to think what was going on around the time in the culture and the context that it was being written into. And that's very helpful for us here in Mark chapter 13 because Jesus is saying some strange things. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he... It's already weird. We're not even that many words in. It's like the abomination of desolation. If you have had a child and you name them abomination of desolation, we should probably have a parenting chat. What is going on here where he ought not to be? Let the reader understand What's, what is this? We're only a few words in. This is already so strange. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. We need to do a little bit of a look at history and what's happening around the time. Jesus is telling his followers in Mark chapter 13 about the coming uh, desolation that is going to happen to Jerusalem, the ancient city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is foretelling, prophesying what is going to happen some 40 years later. I don't know, I don't know how many of you have done uh, you know, Roman history in, in high school or in university or have studied that period, but you would know well Uh, that the Romans came in to Jerusalem around A.D. 70 and absolutely destroyed the city. Violently destroyed the city. So when Jesus says, let those who are in Judea, that's the surrounding area, flee to the mountains. Flee to the mountains. We can get super spiritual about this. God, what does it mean to spiritually flee to the mountains? Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Literally, when you see these signs, flee to the mountains. Pray it doesn't happen in winter. Pray that the mothers with, with young infants, that they're able to go, that they're able to escape because it's going to be horrible when you see these signs flee to the mountains. But how do we understand this term? What in the world is this about the abomination of desolation? I'm sure this morning you woke up and thought, I just hope that Rich is going to preach about the abomination of desolation this morning. I just need to hear that in my life, what I'm walking through in my life right now. I just need to know what is the abomination of desolation. Well, the word abomination is used in Scripture in in quite a big way to refer to extreme acts of idolatry. What is meant by that? Extreme acts of people worshiping other gods. God doesn't like that. God is jealous for our hearts. He made us to always enjoy relationship with Him. Always. But where history went so wrong, and you can read about it in the first pages of this book, is that people decided that they knew better than God. Essentially, their own pride, their own false sense of wisdom and cleverness led them astray. And they put that over God Himself. And humanity started going down this road that's filled with pain and, and, and suffering, and, and all of these things, that God originally, he did not want these things for us. He wanted just to enjoy perfect union with him. But we, th- we said, no, we think that we know better. And throughout all of human history, that has happened, people pursuing false gods. Now, back in biblical times, those false gods were given names. So let me give you an example from First uh, Kings. So this is First Kings chapter 11. It says this, it says, Then Solomon built a high place for Shamosh, the abomination of Moab. So we have a, a false god that is named right there. And from Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And Solomon, he did this for his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. These acts are described as an abomination. We also know that what happened there as part of that abomination, as part of that worship of false gods, is that human sacrifice was involved. And further to that, as if that's not horrible enough, human sacrifice involving children. Abomination. Leading, uh, following rather false gods, following gods that are not the one true God, leads to pain, leads to agony. Not only does it hurt us, it hurts those around us, including. That's an extreme case, of course, but including those that we are supposed to care for, that we are supposed to love, an abomination. So that word in Scripture tends to be reserved for the most heinous acts of idolatry. So what is the abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about that is coming to Jerusalem? Well, in some ways, it's a similar thing. The Roman Empire was built around an abomination, a worship of a false god. People at the time in the Roman Empire would have carried coins of The emperor, just as all roads led to Rome, all paths of authority, of leadership in the Roman Empire led to the emperor, the Roman emperor, and people in the Roman Empire would go around and they would have coins on them that would have an inscription on them of the emperor, and it would say things like, son of the divine. There was a claim to divinity. People in the Roman Empire were told, were taught, and were required to believe that the emperor was divine, that he was literally a son of God, divine in his own right. So again we see idolatry, again we see this abomination. So that is what is being referred to. When you see the abomination of desolation standing there, excuse me, standing there. That's what Jesus is referring to. When those that operate that way, that are carrying this inscription, that are worshiping this false God, when you see them coming, flee to the mountains now why is Jesus saying this and I know you're all thinking yeah thanks for the little history lesson but again life today Ottawa help me out here why is Jesus saying all this Jesus is warning his church he's warning his bride the Bible talks about Jesus as a perfect husband and the church being part of the bride that he came to lay his life down for out of that love Jesus is warning his bride And we read from the early church historian, Eusebius, that the early church, heeding that warning, fled to a nearby city. On seeing the signs, they fled to a nearby city called Pella, and because of that, many of them were able to escape the Roman siege on Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus warned them all those years earlier. Out of love for his bride, husbands in the room, if you knew that there was some harm coming to your wife, if you knew it, of course you would say it to her. Of course, you would. Even if it was 40 years out, you would still say it. Any loving husband would do that. And that's exactly what Jesus, the perfect husband, does for his bride, the church. What's the application of that today? Jesus cares deeply for his bride. Deeply for his bride. And that is not limited by church history. That just didn't stop, you know, after that happened in Jerusalem. No, Jesus still today cares for his bride far more. Than you and I would ever be able to put our own words to. Now, the thing that happened in Jerusalem at the time, Jesus again starts saying some 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 strange words about this, and he says that this thing that happens that 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 is cut short, this abomination of desolation, this attack, that it would be cut short. There's a lot of confusion about this in, 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 in church life. I'm not going to wade too far into it now about signs of end times and that sort of thing. But we need to understand that the age that we still live in right now, when we sit between when Jesus went back to be with his father in heaven after his death and resurrection, and when Jesus is going to come again. Some of you are going, whoa, <laughs> just dropping that in there. Cool. If you've got questions about that, let us know. Let your life, life group leaders know. I, I don't mean to just throw that out there thinking that, In all of our minds, it just kind of makes sense, and off we go. That's a big thing. But we live in the age between that, and we still live in a time when there are trials, when there are storms raging around us, when the things that we read about in Mark chapter 13 are happening, when the church is being persecuted. But in that unique persecution that was happening in Jerusalem at that time, or 40 years after Jesus was saying this, Jesus says that God, in his grace and in his love for the church, cut that time short so it wouldn't be long and dragged out. Now, there's a word that he uses to, 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 uh, to speak to a group of people, to address a group of people and identify a group of people that God, in his grace, is wanting to serve and wanting to help and cutting this tribulation short. And the word that Jesus uses three times in seven verses, three times in seven verses, is the elect. And here we are. Some of you got our church text this week where we ask that question. You know, this thing around God choosing some people and not choosing others. For those of you that have been Christians for any length of time, at some stage probably you've come across this question. Maybe not all, but many in this room will have. And man, we struggle with that. This idea of God choosing some and not choosing others. Now before I get into why that is such a difficult question for us, I want us again to look at Mark chapter 13 and understand that when Jesus talks about the elect and speaks about them three times in seven verses, he speaks about it in a way that is meant to bring comfort to the church. He doesn't speak about it in a way that is meant to cause them to go away and, and, to, and to wrestle and to be confused and to be filled with fear or anxiety around this. He's saying it as a way to comfort them. Why is he saying it in a way to comfort them? Well, look, pain, suffering, trials, these are all parts of the Christian life. And again, all around this room, there are different experiences of that, even right now for some of you. that's a, You're hearing me say that, and you're like, yep, that is me right now. After this church service, there's a phone call that you're dreading, or there's a meeting happening this week, or an answer coming back to you this week about something that you're just, oh, what is going to happen Life is hard. I don't know what way that's going to play out. Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be on my own? Am I going to be able to provide for myself, for love? All of these different things. Life can be tough. It can be so tough. And even when you give your life to Jesus, still life can be tough. As we started a few minutes ago by saying, Jesus said that it would be. So what hope can we have? What peace can we have? Well, I want you to know this morning that God's intention behind His sovereign choice in choosing some and not others is meant to bring us comfort. It's meant to bring us peace. It is meant to give us hope. But who are these mysterious people that Jesus is talking about? The elect, named three times in these seven verses. Well, we need a definition of the elect and of election. It won't surprise you to hear me say this morning that elect and the election has to do with choosing people. We live in a democratic system that we largely enjoy, depending on what's going on around us, and we know that that involves going and choosing people. You walk into a voting booth and you choose. You make that choice. That's what's what's happening during an election. But election is a theological term. Let's get all nerdy together for a minute. Let's define it, all right? Wayne Grudem says this. He's a great theologian. He says, Election is an act of God... Before creation, in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Clearly God's choice. And friends, no matter where you stand on this issue, you can't get away from election in the Bible. Like, you have to do so many scriptural gymnastics to talk this one away. Jesus uses that word three times in seven verses in Mark chapter 13. In Ephesians 1, Paul talks about it. In other places in Scripture, we cannot get away from this, that God chooses some and not others. You have to do such scriptural gymnastics to move away from this. And it does make us feel uncomfortable. And here's why. Because election is deeply personal. This is not just an intellectual exercise for us. The reason we struggle with this so much is because some of you in this room who are Christians, some of you have lost family members who you don't think have been saved. You don't think they've given their lives to Jesus. Some of you yourself think that if you open your mind to this theological concept of God choosing some and, other and not others, you're opening yourself to the possibility that maybe God didn't choose you. I'm going to speak about that later. Don't worry. That's a big thing. But some of us think because this is so personal, the only way we can cope with that is intellectually to go, well, it can't be true. It can't be true. I want you to know that it is true. But we never approach these things just with our minds. It's just not how we're built. We approach them with our emotions, with our experiences, with our hurts, with our pains. We see uh, and we come to our beliefs and our understandings through all of these things. It's never just intellectually So this is a very personal thing. It's a massive thing. It's a massive topic. But what I will say is this, is that if we refuse to accept that God has the freedom to to determine His plan of salvation as He chooses, as He wishes, and Scripture is clear that God's plan of salvation, God's plan for saving us, begins with God's freedom to choose, His sovereign choice. If we don't think that that works or that that can work, then we have a much bigger problem on our hands than election. The problem we have on our hands is that we think we know better than God. The problem that we have on our hands is pride. And that only leads to pain. God is free to choose how his plan of salvation works however he wants. He is God. So in Romans 9, Paul is speaking about this very thing. It's a section in Romans about God's freedom to choose, his sovereign choice that God does anything that he pleases. And instead of trying to get all intellectual about it, he appeals to the heart. He says to the church in Rome, he said, look, what's going on in your heart that you, that you struggle with this? And he makes, it's a little bit funny, but he makes a, an interesting comparison. He says this in Romans 9, 20, but who are you, O oh man? To answer back to God, what is mold, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Well what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? This is my coffee mug that I meant to take a sip of water out of every time I said something hard in this sermon. I just realized that I'd be out of water pretty quickly. So anyway, here it is. This is my New Brunswick mug from chapters. I grew up in New Brunswick. It'd be like this mug saying to me, "Eh, New Brunswick's all right, but I'd really like to be an Ontario mug. Why didn't you make me an Ontario mug?" Or a BC mug. Have you seen the mountains out there? I've got a moose on me and some rocks that change with the tide. I would like to be the mug that has the mountains on it. What Paul's saying, it would be like the mug saying to his sculptor, eh, I don't really like how I've been made. I don't like how you think. And for us as created beings to say to God, God, your plan of salvation, no, it just doesn't work. It doesn't sit well with me. Like Friends, do you understand the... the Frankly, the absurdity of that? <laughs> that we as created beings could say to the Creator, nah, God, it it can't work like that. It doesn't work like that. I, I know a better way. Just hear me out. I know a better way. It's absurd. God is free to choose how his plan of salvation will work. God is God. He is free to do it any way that he likes. If we believe that God is just and that he is good in all that he does, then we should take comfort in the fact that he is free to do everything that he pleases and anything that he pleases because all that he does will be for the good of those who are in Christ. For our good and for our comfort. The way that God will define comfort in our lives is different than how we would. Lots of stories about that around this room. But all that God does is good. All that God does is for our good. Ultimately, even if we don't understand it, all that he chooses See, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, you, you, sometimes people might ask you the question, well, how, how, how were you saved? How did you give your life to Jesus? What is that process? And some people might say, well, there was a, there was a church service, and I walked to the front of the room, you know, the, 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 the preacher said, if anybody wants to give their life to Jesus, come to the front of the room, and, or I put my hand up where I was, and I, I gave my life to Jesus, and there'd be different stories of that in here. But that's not the way that Scripture talks about it from its beginning, we, in ourselves, completely left on our own, we do not seek God. We do not choose God. We choose false gods. We choose the wrong gods. We throw ourselves after these things. And there's so much pain and strife in the world around us and in our own lives. Do not think that this is just, well, those people in that part of the world, they really need to hear this. They're worshiping some false... No, 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 no. No, no. You worship false gods. You pursue things in your heart that you treat higher than God, the God of the Bible. I do it. We all do it. Left on our own, there is nothing in us that seeks after God. Not for any of us. But God, in his grace, before the beginning of time, chose us. Why, friends, should this bring us so much Comfort. This is why. And if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this. It means that when we go through pain and trial and difficulty in life, we do not take comfort in thinking, well, I will get through this if I, depending on how well I cling on to God... That's how I'll get through. I'll be able to survive. I just need to keep clinging to God. Cling to God. Your friends will just keep, keep holding on to God. Okay, okay, I'll get through this if I hold on to God. Whereas this book says the way that you will get through it is determined by how much God holds on to you. Because given enough time, you will not cling on to God perfectly. In fact, I doubt most of us in this room would even get to the end of the day today clinging on to God perfectly. We can be comforted knowing that before time even began, God in his sovereign choice, in choosing his people, decreed, determined to hang on to those who are in Christ for all of eternity. When you walk through trial, when you walk through pain, through hardship, some of you that are in them right now don't think, oh, if I just cling to God, I'll be fine. Must cling to God. Must do. Must must formulate my day. So I just cling to God. Just take a deep breath, rest. Praise God for His grace that you will get through it because God is clinging onto you, and His grip is much stronger than yours is. He will not let you go. Do you still struggle with the idea of God choosing whoever He pleases? There's a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller who says this, the answer that he's referring to here is the answer to the question of what about election, what about God choosing? He says this, he says, first the answer, it must have something to do with God's perfect nature. He's perfectly loving and perfectly righteous, and neither can be preferred over the other or he wouldn't be God. Somehow the answer to why God's plan of salvation works this way, beginning with God's sovereign choice, must be have to do with him being consistent with himself. Secondly, we cannot see the whole picture. Man, my, my, my walk with God will look so different most days if I just remembered that, that little fact that we cannot see the whole picture. What's happened to you this past week where in your mind you played out what the next six months are going to look like? I've done it. My goodness, I've done it. We have a property back in the UK where we were based for many years and we're trying to sell it. We have chosen the worst time in 10 years to sell a property in the UK, Brexit and everything else. And in my mind, this past week after having a chat with the property agent in the UK, my mind does the same thing that yours does, races through the next six months or a year off. It doesn't sell and then this and we're not, we're paying two mortgages now and we can only afford that for a couple months and ah, God, God help if I just cling on to God, if I just set more time aside to pray and to worship, and oh, maybe if I preach a good message this Sunday, then maybe God will break through for me. <laughs> God's going, I've got you. I gave you that place in the first place. I've got you. It's made of bricks. I made the bricks. You paid for it with money. Money's a created thing. I've existed for all of eternity. Trust me. Trust me. I need to be open to the fact that God is doing something far greater in all of this than I could ever imagine. I just go into, like, panic mode, whereas God's going chill and watch. Just watch. Watch what I'm going to do here. Tim Keller goes on, he says, Secondly, we can't see the whole picture. Why? If we can conceive of a more merciful system of salvation than God has, then we must not see it rightly. For God is more merciful than we can ever imagine. Indeed, when we finally see the whole plan and whole answer, we will not be able to find fault with it. Friends, we do not see God's plans perfectly right now. We don't see God as he is perfectly right now. But friends, if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, you've given your life to Jesus, there is a day coming when you will see him as he is. There's a day coming when you will fully know him just as you are fully known. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. There's a day coming when we will understand the full picture and we will look at God's plans and the things that have happened in your life and that are happening in your life right now where you're going, I just don't understand. God, how could you possibly be using this for my good? It's impossible. There is a day coming if you are in Christ when you will look at it and you will say, That's exactly what he was doing. I didn't even see it. Look at how he used that horrible situation, that wicked situation. Look at how he used it for my good. There's a day coming when we will know him and know his plans and see his fingerprints on all of it. Right now, we don't see it that way. Our perspective is limited. While God's plan of salvation begins with God's choosing, it all is dependent on Jesus Christ. It is all dependent on Jesus Christ. And Some of you, even this morning, might be thinking, well, how, how is it that I... Rich, if you're telling me that God is free to choose those that he wants and others he doesn't choose, how do I know that I'm one of the chosen? How do I know that I'm one of the elect? Take comfort in this. What I would say to you this morning is if you're even having that thought, there's a very good chance that you are. If there's something in your heart right now that is going, God, I I want that to be me, there's a very good chance that God has put that in your heart, and that's why you're even asking the very question. Let that comfort you this morning. It's not for us to look at God's plan of salvation and to say, God, no, there must be a better way. There's a better plan than this. This just doesn't make sense. It's just not right. It's just not just. It's just not fair. What would be fair would be that none of us would spend God for eternity. That would be fair. It's grace. It's grace that those of us that are in Christ are able to. Are you in a place where you're asking that question, where you're wondering, God, is this? Is this? Have you chosen me? Scripture makes it clear what it is uh, that you are to do, and who will be saved. Actually, in three different parts of Scripture, the exact same words are used: Joel two, Acts two, and Romans chapter ten. It says this: Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Everyone. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, call on his name this morning. Call on the one who went to the cross in your place this morning. Call on the one who lived his life perfectly. You couldn't do it and I couldn't do it. He did it for us. And on the cross, he made a way for our sin to be transferred onto him and him paying the penalty and his perfect righteousness being transferred onto us. Call on his name and you will be saved going to invite the worship band to come up, and we're going to worship. We have so many reasons, again, just to worship our God this morning. they are going to do one song, and then after that, Matt will come and lead us in uh, communion. Would you stand with me as we get ready to lift our voices in praise to God? just want to say again, we believe that God is a speaking God. If you think that God is saying something to you that may be applicable for one or two people specifically in the room, or maybe for us as a church, just come and tap Matt on the shoulder up here. And just say, I just feel this, I just wonder if this, you know, Matt Matt will help steer that and and, uh, help serve us in that. But Let me just pray, and then we're going to sing. God, thank you that you are sovereign and that you are in control. And God, I recognize so many times in my own life when I decide that I know better than you. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you still in those moments, you're tender towards me, you're gracious towards me. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that your plan of salvation, while it begins with your sovereign choosing, that it all hinges on your perfect son. All hinges on Jesus. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for going to the cross in our place. Thank you that you're here this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray for any in this room right now who who, who right now are feeling any sense of fear or anxiety of, oh, how do I know? God, I pray that they would be filled by your Spirit. I pray that any fear or anxiety, even as we sing right now, that it would go in Jesus' name, that they would know grace, that they would know that this is by your choosing, not by their performance, not by their behavior. This is by what you decide. Jesus, thank you that everyone that calls on your name, everyone who calls on your name, will be saved. I pray Again, God, even as we sing right now, that in hearts around this room, there would be people that would call on the name of the Lord and would know saving grace this morning. Jesus, we love you and we worship you. Amen. Amen.